HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm your host, Capri Cafaro. We're delving into the unique world of Missouri foodways with author, food historian, and foodways interpreter, Suzanne Corbett. A native of Missouri, Corbett has contributed to a variety of regional and national publications, including AAA Explorer, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and Midwest Living. And she's authored five books, including The Gilded Table, Pushcarts and Stalls, The Solard Market History Cookbook, and A Culinary History of Missouri. Let's welcome Suzanne to the program. Suzanne, I am so glad that you are joining us on Eat Your Heartland Out. It's a pleasure, because I can't think of anything better than to eat my way through the heartland, because we've got so much great history. (laughs) Well, you and me both, and hopefully our audience as well. Indeed. Well, you have a very um, interesting and compelling story, at least I think, and I think that our listeners will agree. Uh, you hail from Missouri or Missouri, as uh, you know, you've discussed before, depending on what part of the state uh, you're in. Um, and I believe you're a you're a Missouri native, and you know now you've become a uh, quite an expert uh, when it comes to the region's uh, you know food and culinary history. Um, so let's just start there. Once upon a time, Suzanne is from Missouri. Uh, how did your how did your Missouri roots inform uh, your your path to where you are today? Well, my Missouri roots began on a Missouri, and I mean on the Missouri side of the state, truck farm. And if for those of you who don't know what a truck farm is, a truck farm is a small garden, usually row crops, just a, maybe a few acres, maybe ten acres at the most, uh, and you would. Uh, be able to take those groceries, those uh, farm products, sell them on a, a stand along the side of the road, and we take them to the farm market. Or we'd have our own little clients and little mom-and-pop grocery stores that we would supply throughout the year. And uh, I learned old ways, the old food ways, the ways of the way 
grandma and grandpa used to cook back in the day. And those are the foodways that I started my career with. I knew how to can. I knew how to start a fire. I understood cast iron because these were all implements that I grew up with. So it just became second nature to me to be able to take those historical foodways, those elements of the past that you might find in grandma's back of the kitchen cupboard and be able to utilize those and to be able to resurrect those great tastes and smells of food from the past that you can enjoy today. Well, what attracted you to, to, you know, the things at the back of the cupboard, so to speak? I mean, some people would just say, well, you know, that's uh, an antiquated method and I'm not interested and, um, you know, wouldn't be bothered. But something must have attracted you to wanting to continue to use those things and, and really inform yourself and share your knowledge about, uh, you know, culinary history and food ways. Well, that's an interesting path because when I grew up, those types of utensils and uh, artifacts, what people call today, you know, the old-fashioned beaters and butter churns and uh, shelling machines and things like that were just everyday things. It, it was just something that you became accustomed of using. You had to. It's just, just what we had. Um, but I embraced those because it almost had a theater aspect to them, which is really where my first love was when I was very young. I wanted to be an actress. So I, that just turned into a food show that in the day when you didn't have the food shows outside of Julia Child, and she was the first as successful as we all know. But um, I always had a love for history. And when you can have history and you can combine uh, food ways with that, You've got the ultimate food show, which is what I do and which is how I began my career. I first started along that path teaching, and during a cooking class that I was doing, one of the curators from the county parks took one of my cooking classes and said, hey, what about uh, coming up with some kind of a program that you could do at our site? And if you came, you could dress in costume and, you know, demonstrate. You could sell a few things, whatever you cooked. That was back in the day when you could do that. Uh, and by the way, if you came in a costume, you could go to the ladies' tea for free. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I want to do that. So I ran out and got a butterick pattern, sewed it up. It was a frontier kind of looking thing. And little did I know that that was the beginning of the affliction of my love affair with food history. I, I love thought, it. I love my it. My God, and, I finally and, have got it. And the, the incorporation of the butterick pattern, I have it in my head. I can see it. I I can feel it. Uh, so how did you, you know, put on these performances? What were you sharing? What were you sharing with the folks? And, and who were you educating? I was educating the general public at first at local uh, history sites, regional park sites, and that eventually grew into the national park system where I have been honored to be able to be embraced by them but through my foodways interpretive skills. But I would look, look at a particular site, come up with whatever kind of a food that would best represent that site. Uh, one of the easiest things that you can incorporate in so many sites are something to do with bread or some kind of bread substance, whether it's corn bread or some kind of a yeast bread, 
particularly in the Midwest where I am, in Missouri and the Illinois country where uh, the French originally settled. This was originally the uh, breadbasket of the country. A lot of wheat grown. Milling was a, a centerpiece here. So it just worked out well to be able to use vintage recipes. And since I could decipher these recipes, because it's basically how I was brought up to take flour and water, uh, yeast, and turn it into a loaf of bread, which, by the way, is one of the recipes that is in some of the collections that I have worked with. Take water, yeast, flour, mix, bake. <laughs> I understood what well, that meant. So I was able <laughs> yes, to you're, translate you're, you're, that. You're well ahead of the curve from everyone in the pandemic that did their, you know, sourdough starter and thought that they were reinventing the wheel. Um, <laughs> you know, but I, I, give us some examples. I mean, you just, you just, you know, gave us some examples about bread, but when you are trying to select a recipe that is or food that is reflective kind of of the con the historical context, how do you go about doing that? Um, and and what are some examples of some of those dishes or items? Well, a good example is when I've been asked to interpret foodways at the Ulysses S. Grant National Historic Site in St. Louis. Uh, this is the site of uh, Ulysses S. Grant's father-in-law. It's site the is Frederick Dent. This is where he met his wife and he have married here and lived at the site at the farm for a number of years before he left and went on to uh, become the general of the armies. But uh, at that particular site or any site, you look at what the site's history is and you start digging into what that food connection would be. And at and at the Grant site here in St. Louis, it is all about the farm, the items that they grew, and some of the documentation of the food memories. Julia uh, Grant, at the Grant site, there's a lot of memories about gingerbread, because Grant loved gingerbread. So we interpret gingerbread, the different styles of gingerbread, and how he chose a particular cook and baker to take with him to Washington solely on her ability for making gingerbread. Also, there's uh, comments and uh, stories about the chickens that were grown on site of Whitehaven, which is the farm's name out there, and uh, chicken pie and the interesting tales about how a chicken pie was really one of the more favorite dishes for a Southern-styled Thanksgiving outside of a turkey. And you have to realize that Missouri at this particular time was more Southern than Northern, of course. there's The, the uh, Dents were Southern sympathizers, where Grant was not. Uh, and it was considered too Yankee-fied to have turkey on Thanksgiving table. You want to have something that's not quite so... Uh, uh, an assault to one's sensibilities, such as that turkey, to celebrate one's thanks for the year. Well, I certainly learned something new just from that conversation there. Uh, but it's it definitely reflective of the fact that it takes a lot of time and effort to be able to recreate these uh, these recipes. And then how do you convey these, these kind of nuances of the historical significance to the general public? So it's one thing to say, okay, you know, Ulysses S. Grant really loved 
gingerbread. Here's some gingerbread. Here's, you know, how we've interpreted a recipe that we've found, you know, in the archives or through, a, you know, a, a writing or whatever. But how do you uh, convey some of these more um, specific details to the general public so they really get an understanding of, you know, what it would have been like uh, and and why this particular dish is so important in this historical context. Well, it's through the story that you tell when you're preparing the dish, because every dish has a story and they have related stories. With gingerbread, I just don't talk about the gingerbread that Grant enjoyed, but also the, the style of gingerbread that maybe Abraham Lincoln had as a, a gingerbread biscuit, a gingerbread that more people would think of as a gingerbread man or a gingerbread cookie and and all the different layers that just that one particular recipe or item can have to contribute to an entire story of about a site. Uh, so these these different dishes can can give you so much. So when people are coming in to talk to me or I'm presenting or interpreting the food ways, it's just not talking about the background and the recipe itself, but also in the physical presentation on how you make it, how it's cooked, how it was perceived and, and how it was uh, presented. It all is part of it. And many of these things are, are disappeared, but we're bringing them back. And many of the older recipes are being rediscovered by some of the newer chefs today as Eureka, something new. And it's really not. It's just old ways found on, on a new plate. I love that. I love that. Um, and as we're talking about Ulysses S. Grant and, you know, that, that bicentennial is coming up, uh, I understand that there's going to be a pretty big um, celebration uh, in Missouri and, and I guess across the country. Uh, and you're involved in that, right? Yes, I am. I am uh, co-chairing an event called the Farm Table to the Gilded Table, which we encourage people to come and party like it's 1845 at Whitehaven, which is the Ulysses S. Grant historic site, or party like it's 1875, which is the Campbell House Museum, which is a, a Victorian-style townhouse owned by Robert Campbell, who, which was a friend of Grant's, where he came many times and dined exquisitely on Gilded Age uh, fare of the day, 12-course, 14-course dinners, and we're going to be presenting foods prepared by local chefs. Many of our James Beard nominated chefs. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful site. It's recipes that reflect the history of both sites, along with the libations like Roman punch, which oh. think of it as a <laughs> champagne slushy that was served primarily in the middle of these multi-course meals, because in the day it was thought if you had a little bit of citrus in the middle of your dining experience, that it would help make room in your stomach to be able to eat more. Yes, I, I've seen that in, you know, in, in very gourmet restaurants still. Sometimes they have that little bit of very tart sorbet as a palate cleanser you know, in between courses. And I guess this is you know maybe the 18 party like it's 1845 version of that that's pretty much pretty much but it was quite and it was quite the thing to have all the way through the gilded age until about the uh, first world war and then it 
all these dishes started to kind of courses started to drop off and got shifted around, such as the salad moving from the end of the meal to the beginning of the meal, only because diners needed something to do with themselves while their dinner was being cooked. Ah, that makes that makes some sense. That how can people find? I have lots of other things to to ask you, but how can people find out about these Ulysses S. Grant events that that you're involved with? If they wanted to come out to Missouri, or maybe even you know try to find something in their own region that might be connected that could have a similar program. Well, you can find out information by uh, getting a hold of the Campbell House Museum, which is Campbell House Museum dot org backslash us grant and that'll take you to the website that gives you all the information about the event it's september the 25th and um tickets are on sale now it's worth a trip into missouri i i certainly agree but for those people that can't get to the missouri i know that you've uh written a number of books um, that might be able to let uh, readers travel to Missouri in, in one way, shape, or form. Um, and I, I want to ask you about, um, kind of shift gears a little bit and ask about um, some of the books that you've written um, about Missouri uh, and, and, its, and its foodways. Well, one of my, my very first book was called The Pushcarts and Stalls, a Soulard Market History Cookbook, which reflected my farm girl past, recipes based on all of that farm produce that that you grew and it was centered around a market that has a very rich history that that uh, some people like to connect to the earlier french days but it really didn't get officially established until about the 1840s or so uh from that book i've gone to uh my latest book which is a culinary history of Missouri with iconic dishes and foodways of the Show Me State. Um, I co-authored that, and we look at a variety of of different things from the native, uh, the native plants that were here, along with just the uh, things that you think about Missouri today, from barbecue to toasted ravioli to cashew chicken down in Springfield, Missouri. So it has a, a long uh, list of different foodways and stories. It's not a complete list because there's not enough paper to fill everything that Missouri has to offer in one book. So uh, this gives you a little bit of a taste of Missouri that encourages you to eat up more from the colonial foods uh, and foodways and traditions to uh, the barbecue today to just the new ways of the new chefs that are coming about who are making a name for themselves using the old recipes and ingredients that was around in Missouri at the time that it was founded in the 1820s. I find Missouri one of the most fascinating uh, states when it comes to foodways and, and culinary history and roots. Um, you know, past, present, and future, how people, as you mentioned, are kind of reimagining some of the um the 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 older dishes and and the older methodologies and empl- and employing them today including foraging and a number of other things. Um I really want to dig deeper um into um kind of what Missouri foodways are uh cover a little bit more in, in that book um talk a little bit more about Missouri what are 
quintessential Missouri ingredients, and then touch upon, um, you know, very importantly, at least in my view, um, the unique uh, French history and roots of Missouri. This is Eat Your Heartland Out. I'm Capri Cafaro. We'll be right back after this break. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, Mm -hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, And so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, And that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet? And like, why is this cheese so expensive? And can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Suzanne, you've, you've written so many books. You've dedicated your career to Missouri foodways and interpretation. Uh, so obviously, you know your stuff. Uh, so I have to ask you, you know, what would be the main ingredients or crops or something like that that you would point to to say, this is quintessential Missouri and I'm going to point to this and say, you know, Missouri food wouldn't be the same without it. Well, I think you have to look at the overall bounty that Missouri has. It's not so much of one or two ingredients, but it's the native ingredients and the ingredients those people who came to settle here brought with them. So we have this Missouri stew, I like to say, that bubbles Hmm. up and and has all kinds of great things that each group contributed to what Missouri food was and has become today, dating all the way back to the Mississippians, all the way to the present day uh, James Beard award-winning chefs that the state has. But I like to go all the way back and think about maybe just, just a couple of things that are standouts that some of those immigrants that came in really embraced. And one of those things are pecans. Pecans, huh. the wild pecans that grew along the riverbeds, the, the Mississippi, and all around uh, the other tributaries, the French loved them when the French came here in the um, 18th century, in the 1700s. And they so loved the pecans that the wild pecan groves that were along St. Louis, they overharvested them, they just sacked them. But those pecans are... Th- Trees of that same age can still be found in St. Genevieve, which remains the perm- the first permanent settlement mm-hmm. that was established in Missouri. 
And there's a big there's a big festival there, right? I I I've looked into this. Oh yes, it's this uh, the French heritage fascinates me. Indeed, it's the Pecan Palooza. You've got to come to the Pecan Palooza because it embraces <laughs> everything you can do with a pecan, from uh, just the cl- classic glazed pecans to roasting them and salting them to using them into nougats and pastries. It's just a wonderful, very versatile pecan, uh, a very versatile nut that you can use in so many different applications. And as I said before, the what whatever the French put an almond in, you can get almonds here, so they use the pecan. Interesting. I want to I want to circle back to the to the French in, in a minute and how they kind of came to Missouri. But besides the pecan, because you said that, you know, they, they grew along the riverbed. And I, sometimes, at least for me, I associate Missouri or the Ozarks with fo- a foraging culture. Do you see that? I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the expert. I'm the outsider. Well, any immigrant group relies on a good deal of foraging. Uh, what made the French so successful here? in Missouri with establishing themselves here and the colonizers, they embraced the native foods and the wild foods they found where other groups, not so much. The English were kind of suspicious. They'd starve hmm. before they would taste something. They were the original Mikey of the uh, food world. You <laughs> they know, don't, like, they don't like it. They don't like yeah, it. I, yeah, they don't like it. I'm not sure about this. You know, And it took them a while to kind of figure things out. But the French, they always had this appreciation for native foods and to try different things, uh, fusion, as we like to say now, we you fuse all these different elements together to create a new cuisine. They had it covered 200, 300 years ago. Nothing on them. Nothing on them at why, all. Why do you think that is? I, I think it's part of the culture. I think it is part of what the French do is they look at particular foods, and they are more open to experimentation and flavors um, and creating those new tastes. It's just something very rudimentary. Whenever you look through some of the historical documents that, that I've studied in in my career, time and time again, there's notations about how the most humblest of French people understood what good food and how to prepare it was. They they were good culinarians. They were excellent cooks. So everyone ate well. They might not have ate fancy, but they ate well. So you would have beautiful stews, ragouts. The um, uh, what they would do with apples, they would bring their apples in from from uh, the Canadian. French would bring those in and they established their orchards here. Very hmm. important part of of the earlier uh, recipes that you see listed. It is a fascinating story to take a look at just how beautiful these tables were because it comes up in the inventories from just how they set the table to what their battery of the kitchen was. You would see things like poacher fish poachers and braziers, uh, other, other types of, of skillets and, and saute pans and that you wouldn't see in the uh, eastern seaboard. You would have, have 
kettles and things. You might see a couple of, of interesting things like uh, waffle irons and the such on the eastern seaboard, but you'd see a little bit more intricate food equipment, culinary equipment here, and in a variety of styles from just not cast iron, but tinware and copper. They would invest in these things. And wow. also in the beautiful fi the in the beautiful faience that they would set the tables with. So so let's rewind just a minute because you obviously said you know they brought a lot of this apples in particular, but it sounds like they they brought a lot of these implements with them. Um, French Canadians, I mean, are these Acadians? Are these Quebecois? Are they French settler? How did the this French element? get to Missouri. Why Missouri? Well, the original French came down from from Canada, and then you had other French that would come up from Louisiana. The founders of St. Louis came up from Louisiana, from New Orleans, hmm. the Chodos and the, and the Laclades, the Laclades. Uh, the French established outposts in the Illinois country, just on the other side of the Mississippi in Illinois and Fort Deschartes, very early on. So you have this combination of French influence in just recipes as well as cultures that complemented one another. And the commodities that we grew, produced, and uh, scavenged, you know, you talk about foraged, but for an example, Bear grease, bear hams were considered a delicacy. It was a good mm. commodity that we could ship further down the river, down to New Orleans and trade it up for other things that the French enjoyed a little bit more that they didn't have here, such as their wines. Mm. It sounds like the river, the Mississippi River, has played a key component in all of this. The rivers play a key component in almost any culture, particularly when in the early beginnings, when you look at Missouri from the beginnings, it all stems from the rivers and then it goes westward. And when it goes west, it brings different people along and across that river, such as the Spanish. You remember that the French and Indian War, France lost their, their um, claim to Missouri it became Spanish territory. So you mm -hmm. had that Spanish influence that came before, uh, and they held it for a number of years before they flipped it back to Napoleon, and then Napoleon sold it to the Americans. And that has a interesting mix as, as far as that stew goes, because you begin to see some of those Spanish and Creole influences, particularly the African influences that came with the Spanish who offered free land, no taxes, to try to boost the population in Missouri when they mm -hmm. had uh, claim to it. And with that free land, those slaveholders were encouraged to bring their enslaved with them because slavery was accepted and, and tolerated in Missouri at that time. So, uh, And... and We've seen so much of the African influence in different parts of, of the United States because of that, um, you know, the unfortunate and tragic legacy that we, we have here. Um, but I, I want to go back to the situation of the stew and, and kind of drill down on 
some of the specific types of dishes, uh, you know, you've been talking about the, the Creole influences, the African influences, the Spanish influences. What encapsulates those kind of flavors that's, that, you know, was present then and may still be present now? I think you look at the row crops that were established, the okras, the squash, the beans. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the spices that were brought in and in, that were imported in, the hot peppers, the cascams, the uh, more exotic spices of ginger and uh, turmeric, things of this nature. Many of these spices that you associate with desserts like mace and nutmeg and uh, cinnamon, you'll find that incorporated into savory dishes. Give me an example of a savory dish. Well, let's see. A good example would be like a duckling and olives, which Hmm. would have those elements added into that. Uh, Particularly, uh, there is a beef stew that has a lot of that mace and that allspice added to it. And then it's served on top of rice, and it's just... Hmm. It's just delicious. It's sort of a twist on a gumbo, but with a Missouri flair. That's interesting. What about those that, you know, have come in from uh, Appalachia or Appalachia for that matter into, because I, I, in, I know that there had been uh, a migration from Kentucky, uh, for example, um, into like Southern uh, Illinois. I don't know if there was that presence in Missouri uh, where things like, you know, burgoo stew, you know, ended up being part of the stew, so to speak, of those culinary foodways of the region because of, you know, some of the um, the traditions that came from uh, from the Appalachian region. Well, I think one of the main traditions that came from the Appalachian region and Kentucky and uh, Tennessee, they brought in a very po- an important part of their foodways, which was making ham. There's only a mm. few states there's only a few states in the country that have the climate that can produce superior hams. Virginia is one, Kentucky, right. Tennessee, and Missouri is also has that temperate uh weather that it doesn't get quite too cold in the winter and doesn't get too awfully hot in the summer for any long extended periods of time, at least so far, even with climate change, who knows mm-hmm. this is going to change as, as well, but that smoking and salting techniques, they are the ones who can contributed the rich tradition that Missouri has huh. today in many of those little smaller towns like California, Missouri, which are renowned for their smoked hams. I've learned something new. And what what about St. Louis barbecue? I mean, we've heard, you know, that's that's obviously a famous thing people think about. Is is that part of, you know, the the great migration after the Civil War and some of those traditions coming in? Um, you know, is there because of the the pork that was present maybe in in Missouri that contributed what what's up with that as far as the that's something that I think a lot of people recognize but maybe don't know the origins like behind. Well, I think it's something else. It has contributed to the influences of the people that came here. You have people coming up from Memphis. You have people coming over from Kansas City. And both of those two elements have their own particular style of barbecue. 
pork is on the Memphis side, beef is on the, the Kansas City side, and St. Louis is sort of like that umbrella. Some people call St. Louis, Kansas City, and Memphis the barbecue triangle. And, huh. and if you look at the two styles in Memphis and Kansas City, St. Louis is, let's, let's call it the love child of the smoker. <laughs> Okay, because it has elements of both that create its own special taste. That is, takes that that uh, little bit sweetness and tomatoey base from Kansas City, and that wonderful spicy succulent rubs from Memphis, and you put it together, and that's what you get with St. Louis barbecue. Now I'm hungry. Again, I feel like every time I do an episode, I'm like, why Why am I not eating right now? Um, I guess probably because I couldn't talk um, with, with food in my mouth, but now I'm, I'm hungry. Um, th- no, this is, it makes a lot of sense, but I think that it's always so fascinating. And I say this, I feel like every episode as well, that, you know, the food tells the story. It's a silent storyteller of the the reason why certain things are, you know, it tells that history as you just described. People came in from Memphis, people came in from Kansas City, you know, and and the product is what we know as St. Louis barbecue. Um, it's just so fascinating. Well, Missouri was a crossroads. People mm-hmm. were coming through it all the time, and those of us that were lucky, that had great recipes and food traditions, they stuck around and they stayed. And we're seeing that today with with some of the, the great Thai chefs and people that have come in to stay mm. a, along with uh, the Bosnian food that's a big influence within the state now. There's just all of these elements. Missouri cuisine is constantly changing. And it's because mm. of the history of their embrace of the immigrants that have come through from the native peoples all the way up to, through today. And you can track that that uh, evolution by what was on the plate. That is a fantastic place to uh, put a pin in our conversation because you really have, I think, summed up um, so much of um, what makes Missouri so unique and Missouri Foodways so unique. I hope to have you back on the show at some point again because you have a wealth of knowledge on, I feel like we could do an episode on each one of these uh, elements, ingredients in the Missouri stew. So um, Suzanne, thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio, supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening. 